Welcome back to the backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. Hey, Professor, good morning. Good morning, man. I'm just going to go ahead and apologize. I'm on a bit of a golf hangover. I don't know. You know, golf trip hangover is a real thing, right? Spent three days on the road playing golf, and I'm a little woozy today, a little tired, so I'm a little off my game. Don't fire me. Mississippi, yeah. right? We were what, Mossy Oak, and uh, what's the other one there? An old Waverly, old of the, old uh, Waverly. home of the 1999 Women's U.S. Open, I believe. Curtis Cup, several a uh, women, Women's Am, um, several USGA events, and yeah, Mossy Oak, one of Gil Hans's, um of course, just gorgeous piece of property. But yeah, we we're over there for three days. Um, a lot of golf, a lot of late night conversations. Um, well, a bit, well, a fun place. Good for you. I'm happy for you because I know, you know, professors work so hard throughout the school year and now you finally reap the benefit. You're getting your golf in. I have nothing to apologize for this week. I have been uh, a daycare illness has swept my home once again. So I'm just kind of like, you know, getting through the week, making sure the kids are still, you know, functioning. And, uh, and I've been, I've been geeking out on and get this and I'm excited for our guest today. I've been watching docu series on lower level Premier League teams. That's like that's my thing. You know when you get sick you got to have something to binge. That's what's been the uh the topic of jour to of the week and uh, uh Sunderland till I die. Got through that one very fascinating stuff and now I'm on the uh, the Wrexham guys where Ryan Reynolds and uh what's the guy from Happy uh, or it's always sunny? Rob uh, McElhenney. Yeah. Yeah. They bought a Premier League, a Wales Premier League team, lower level, like lowest level. And I know our, our, our guest today, Kieran Clark's a big uh, supporter of a, a football club over in the UK. So I'm excited. I'm like learning, you know, about that stuff. But have you, before uh, we get to- have you chose a team yet? Are you, are you ride and die with someone yet? I mean, I, I no, no, I don't have a, I, I want to, here's what I want to do. Cause like Liverpool would be my answer because I had a, a college professor in Ireland for that year that, that was a huge Liverpool supporter. He got me, you know, into it. And, and so that's, I know that's like the Yankees type that's deal. Cliche, so I'm not yeah. going with that, but I got to find, I got to find maybe, maybe his team, maybe Kieran's team is going to be my squad. I don't know. We'll find out. All right. What, all right. uh, what can you educate us today? I, I feel like I'm I'm thirsty for your knowledge, Professor. All right, I got one for the day. Um, definitely an interesting one. So, would you say I know you? I know right now you might not be real happy with the kids. Um, they got you sick and everything, but I think you'd agree they make you melt, right? Your your kids make you melt when you're around. You just just like butter Never. in their hands. <laughs> no, yes, I I know what you mean. You can't get angry at them. They're too damn cute. Too damn cute, right? So. This is fascinating. Um, one of the things I've learned about in the last week, uh, sense of smell impacts so many things of our everyday life. Like it's, it's insane the number of things scent, uh, smell influences. But one of the biggest ones is with babies. All right, so babies, uh, I think the term is, it's hexadecanal, I think is a, I don't know if it's called a chemical or what you would call it. Um, but it's a, it's a volatile. This is a substance that basically can evaporate into the air, right? It is completely odorless, but yet it's still picked up by our olfactory system. And what it does is it blocks aggression in men, but heightens aggression in women. <laughs> right? So when you smell like the back of your baby's neck or whatever, in a male, that will soften aggression. Um, again, you're not smelling anything. It's odorless, but your olfactory system does pick it up. Um, but for a male, that blocks aggression. And for the women, it triggers, you know, often referred to as the maternal response, right? Um, it'll yeah. actually trigger aggression in women and protection. Um, and there's obviously ev- evolutionary reasons for this, you know, uh, in many animals, 
especially mammalians, like males will kill the offspring. Well, this is one of the things through evolution that developed to protect against that, right? To kind of soften the aggression of males while heightening the aggression of women. So women would also protect um, the mothers would protect the offspring. You, this is um, explaining my last yeah. three years. I now understand why why this has uh, occurred. Uh, that 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 aggression shift is certainly played out in my family. Um, no offense, Becca, who doesn't listen to the podcast. Anyways. Yeah, but <laughs> um, <clears throat> wow, that's a good one. That's a good one. So you just how, how did you get this this data? Are you just out yeah, sniffing babies? You got some that, students out there sniffing babies? <laughs> Let's give a citation on this one. Yeah, this is a the Huberman lab, um, one of his most recent pods with, um, gosh, gnome. I don't remember the last name, but one of the most leading edge people on olfactory research, and it's just I was completely ignorant going into the podcast and listening to it. And it was just really interesting to hear how many different ways um, sense of smell influences our lives throughout the entire day. Um, wow. So there you go. Well, this, uh, this is, um, that's educational. Thank you. And I think that's a good uh, lead in. We'll get to our guest here um, and introduce him to the crew. But, uh, but we, we stumbled upon him kind of in a similar fashion, you know, the, the curiosities of, our, our obsession with kind of uh, the differences between golf in the old country in the UK versus golf here in the States and kind of all the cultural societal impacts of that. We talk a lot on that show. Uh, this guy actually writes about some of that and we've, we've stumbled on a number of his articles and uh, he's educated us a lot. So I'm excited to talk to Kieran Clark today. Uh, before we get there, big thanks to our sponsor, Kevin. The WGA is back in Chicago with the Corn Ferry Tour event. That's right. Uh, it is the NV5 Invitational. They're supporters of the podcast this year. I think one of the coolest things for this event that's coming to, uh, what is it, July? Oh, gosh. Uh, July 25th. I, it's in July. We'll add it to the notes. Um, but they are going to live stream the event this year on Barstool Sports. First time Barstool Sports has ever got involved in that. Uh, so Dan Rappaport, Riggs, Trent, those guys are actually going to be on site, uh, to, you know, commentating, bringing in guests. I guess they're going to do some unique things. So uh, innovative stuff coming out of the Western Golf Association in Chicago. Uh, some some real dear friends that that work there are doing fantastic jobs. So thanks to uh, the MV5 Invitational. Tickets are available. Tickets are on sale. So if, if you're listening and you're a lover of the game of golf, which I'm sure you are if you listen to this podcast, uh, get out there. Chicago, it is a blast. I don't, I don't miss it um, any year because uh, you look at the list of winners, Scotty Scheffler, Cameron Young, Will Zalatoris, like these are the up and comings. This is a premier Corn Ferry Tour event to see the best players in the world and you will see them on the biggest stage in years to come. So thanks to the MV5 Invitational. All right, Kevin, without further ado, should we get to this show? Let's do it. Kieran Clark, welcome to The Backdrop. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be with you both. And I must say to the professor there, his uh, very educational, every day is a school day, apparently. <laughs> and uh, so I, my mind is blown by uh, the sniff test there. That was quite something. And I must apologize, gentlemen, for not coming in matching gear like you both have on today. Yeah, you know, I, thank you for bringing that up, Karen. I, I'm, I, uh, the professor, he has a problem. And it's, it's, uh, we all have problems, you know, things we got to work through. His is a merch addiction. And every time we get new merch in the uh, the shop, 
you know, shout out shop.newclub.golf. He is the first one to both email, text, uh, carrier pigeon. He's like, get me some of that merch. And it's, it's a bit obnoxious. It's a bit invasive. Uh, <laughs> but today it's, I mean, this thing hasn't been out more than 48 hours. I have it because, because, you know, I'm bringing the merch in. I, I mean, of course I'm gonna throw it on. Why Kevin had to step on my lawn this morning and wear the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Karen, I just want you to. It's a power play. That's what that is. A power play. <laughs> it's a power play. Uh, I just want you to know there's a hit long running history here of Matt buying merch that I want. I just want <laughs> you to know that we're going all the way back to 2005 Ireland. I, I had my eye on this sweater in Port Rush. Just <laughs> gorgeous sweater. I looked at it. I'm a poor grad student at the time. I'm like, I'm going to get that sweater before I leave. Right. So we play 18. I go back in. Guess what? The sweater's gone. Ah, tough luck. Someone, someone, oh someone bought it. Guess who I see wearing it later in that trip? Ooh. That's not rehash old wounds. That's not rehash old wounds, okay? Oh, you, you, you didn't pull the trigger. Very better, I have to say. Very better. Karen, there's people that pull the trigger in this world and people that don't, right? I'm a man of action. Uh, yeah, by the way, that I, logo on your that logo on your sweater, sir, that looks yes, familiar. Yes, what what well, would that be? It, it's... I have absolutely no idea. I really don't. And actually, you know what? I actually do think I know what it is. I believe it's from a brand called Lyle and Scott, who produced uh, you know you know woolen apparel and actually some golf apparel through the years as well. I think that's where it's from. But I actually think it was a Christmas present, and uh, I don't really I don't check the receipts, so uh, I'm not too sure the origin of it. But it's comfortable, it's cozy, it's warm, and even though today actually here in St Andrews, the home of golf, by the way, it's actually sunny and glorious and blue sky. But obviously, because this conversation is very comfortable and cozy, so I felt I had to dress for the occasion. That is exactly we want people cozy on the backdrop. That is that yes. is number one priority, and I think that is like one of the biggest flexes in golf, Karen. That you can wear a logo and have no idea what it is, because like over here, and this we're going to get into some of the cultural differences, U.S. and U.K. golf. I think we're going to talk about that today. But if mm-hmm. it, it, we call it logo bingo in the US and who can wear the most exclusive, the most, you know, sought after the, the, the highest ranked logo on their chest. But if you go up to somebody and say, oh, whoa, what's that logo? And they say, I have no idea. That might be a next level. So kudos to you, sir. I think you are the one dropping power plays this morning. Well, I'll tell you, well, actually one logo here on my shirt here, which you might be able to see here, that there is from the Bobby Jones collection at the St. Andrews Lynx Trust. That's apparently Bobby Jones on my shirt. So I'm walking around with the world's greatest amateur golfer in history. So um, that, that uh, it seems appropriate. Not that I'm the world's, and probably the world's least greatest amateur golfer in history, but um, I'm, I'm paying homage to the great man who, of course, uh, had great success here in St. Andrews back in the day. And of course, you know, he made, famously walked off the golf course in 1921 in the Open Championship. He came back and won it in 27. He won the British Amateur here in 1930 en route to completing his Grand Slam. So yeah, I'm paying homage to the legendary Robert Trent Jones here on my on my shirt. That's beautiful. Robert Tyre Jones, as you should say. That's, yeah, that's Tr- Trent's another gentleman who had a little different yeah. impact. There's too many Joneses in <laughs> golf, isn't there? I mean, yeah. They, they, they all followed that man. That's why they, they went that route. Yes, but. the trendsetter was a great man, yeah. The, um, so I don't know if you heard at the top of the show, I am deep in docuseries on lower level Premier League teams. Yes, don't ask me why. Yes, it's just, yes. it struck me. Probably Ted Lasso had something to do with that. I know that's the one that everybody's mm. watching. Uh, you're a Johnston supporter, Johnston. St. Johnston, yeah. St. Saint, Saint Johnston. St. Saint John. Yeah. Tell us about your football club. 
How are they doing? What's going on there? Well, 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 we play in the Scottish Premier League, so it's separate from the English football system. How dare I? So we're in a top league. How in, dare I? I know, I know, we're not. <laughs> yes. So England doesn't have they, have, they have the biggest league in the world in England, but everywhere else we have football as well, or soccer. And then my team is in the top league in Scotland, a small club. Uh, we punch above our weight and uh, you know we, we do we do we've played in continental competitions in recent years of what actually won trophies in recent years defying all the odds you know back in uh, two years ago actually during uh, a season that was uh, completely you know bereft by uh, covid there were no crowds at all in the stadiums we actually won both domestic cup competitions which had at the beginning of that season had odds of 10,000 to 1 Wow. As as a as a, as a possibility, so it was one of the biggest sporting upsets, achievements in you know football history. So yeah, a small club, a proud club, and uh, I've supported them for most of my life. I go to most of the games for my sins, and uh, uh, the quality, I'm afraid, Matt, is not up there with the English Premier League, which is obviously you know top level multi millionaire footballers. But uh, yeah, the the culture and the the the, the sense of your know, heart and community, and I think re- your realness, I think, is there as well. Uh, I think there's a, obviously a great degree of commercialization in football these days at the highest level, and sometimes it's quite nice to be at a lower level where it's a little bit more community based, a bit more of a heart to it, and uh, I think more engaging that way. So no, I'm a very proud uh, supporter of St Johnston Football Club, which comes from a, a city called Perth in central Scotland where I grew up. And uh, Perth was known back in the Middle Ages as St. John's Town. And that's where the name of the club comes from. Gotcha. Hey, wow. So there you go. An, an you. education in this. No, so anyways, I, I, I can't compete with Kevin there, but I mean, that, <laughs> that's my input. You might you know, pick up some supporters. So I, I'm, I'm familiar with the, uh, the the Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic rivalry. And, and yes. that yes. because of my time in Ireland, there's a lot of fans there. And then I met a lot of Scottish friends. Yeah. Is that that's Scottish Premier League then, right? Is that the same? Do yes, they play yes. against your, your yeah, club? Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Celtic and Rangers are by far the biggest clubs of the huge fan base. Uh, lots of money compared to everyone else. So, I mean, no one else apart from Celtic and Rangers has actually won the league since 1985. Wow. Uh, that's how big those oh two clubs are. Oh my gosh, are. I had so no really, idea. Yeah. And so yeah. so I know uh, I got so many questions. It, there's Is there an idea of regu- relegation in the Scottish Premier League compared to these others? Yes. Like, can you be promoted into uh, mm-hmm. other leagues mm-hmm. from Scottish Premier League? Yep, so they have a, much like in England, a full pyramid system where you have four divisions, Premier League, Championship, League One, League Two, then the non-league. You mentioned Wrexham earlier, Matt, they came up from non-league in the English system to get to the Football League, and that's now League Two. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's a tiered system where you can be relegated, you can be promoted, uh, so it's a meritocracy in that sense. Not like your uh, your MLS and your NFL and all that stuff. That doesn't they, they don't do promotion and relegation over there. No, but, no, we just we just know, keep a sense of jeopardy. We, we keep the same old farts on the field that that you know. And, exactly. And, uh, where's where's the fun <laughs> in that? Have some variety and mix up a little bit. No, I, I've been fat. That's that's my main fascination with all this is the relegation process and. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, those Wrexham guys are very interesting that the two Hollywood celebrities got involved and are trying to, you know, move them up through the ranks and take their national exposure. How would you feel? I'm curious about this. As a St. Johnston uh, supporter, how would you feel if two Hollywood elites came in and bought up your football club? What would that leave you feeling? Well, I'll tell you what, actually, it's funny you say that, Matt, because right now the club is actually up for sale. So if uh, George Clooney is, is tuning in or Tom Hanks is tuning in, I mean, come on, guys. Mm. I mean, you, you watch Rex and that looked, that looked like a lot of fun. 
try and replicate that in the, the Heartlands of Scotland, please. That'd be lovely. So not, that'd be fun. Uh, but I'm afraid, and I'm not too sure that's going to happen. Actually, one person who is kind of connected to the, the club in some respects is the actor Ewan McGregor, who mm. was actually born in Perth, the same place, and did one time back in the 90s actually go to a game. I believe he was actually thrown out because he went into one of the hospitality suites and he wasn't wearing a tie. Oh, dear. So rules are rules, Kieran. Rules are rules. Apparently, yeah. Well, you know what? I think I think that's kind of traditional, and much like in golf, you know, break the traditions and try and set a new path. I think. Wow! Wow! No to dress codes. No dress codes at all. You read, uh, man. You mentioned meritocracy, and a lot of what I. Uh, have felt when I'm, and we, both Kevin and I have spent a ton of time in the UK with uh, our golf trips, mostly centered around golf and yeah. golf culture. And we've, every time I feel like we get a little bit closer to uh, the roots of the game. And that's one thing that it's very romantic ideal of ours. But uh, but you had mentioned the idea of meritocracy. And actually that is a word I have used to to describe a little bit of the difference in, in I think your golf culture in the UK versus us in the US is that, you know, we definitely have the elitist game at the highest levels, right? Mm-hmm. Our, our clubs, very, very difficult to be a part of yeah. unless you're at the you know peak earning of that community, that area. And that plays out across our country for sure. But I don't feel that in, in the UK. Um, is, do you, am I, would you say there's a meritocracy to your golf environment, your amateur, just, just regular you know, bloke enjoying their game? Is there a meritocracy to the game? I think there is to a great extent, but uh, not entirely. I mean, there are obviously some very exclusive golf clubs and some of these golf courses are extremely expensive to go and try and play and to become a member of them. I mean, you have no chance at all. I mean, um, if, I, if I want to be a member of the, the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews, not that I would actually, because I'm not really my kind of crowd, has to be said, but I have no chance of getting in the doors there. So there's a kind of elitism there. But I think the one difference is between golf in the US and over here is for the majority of the cases, if you want to go and play some of the you know, some of the greatest golf courses in the country, you can do it. Whereas in the US, obviously a lot of gates, you know, gates around the property, you can't really get in the doors at all. Uh, and that's a big difference. And I think that is why you know so many people, you know, like yourselves, you know, travel over here in great numbers because you can go and play legendary golf courses where all the great players have played and get a real sense of you know the origins of the game and and maybe how the game you know perhaps should be in many respects. So I think you know golf in the UK has you know, held on to that kind of sense of community and be more open and welcoming than perhaps elsewhere. But of course, at the same time, I mean, there are exceptions to that and it's not a completely perfect picture at all. But yeah, I think it's it's something that we should be proud of here because, um, you know, to me, if you, for example, in St Andrews, anyone can come and play the old course, which I think is probably the most you know, consequential golf course in, in the game. Uh, it's one that kind of means the most uh, for different reasons. And anyone can come and play there. Um, and I think that is, while it's still expensive and things like that, but you still have the opportunity. And I think that kind of represents what golf should be about. And, and that's one upside that we have, uh, certainly in golf in the UK. Karen, do you have a sense of where does that stem from, the difference, you know, between the U.S. and the U.K., um, specifically in the U.K., of this openness and accessibility? You know, historically, why is that the case? And, uh, yeah. Well, if, if you go back in time, Kevin, I mean, back in, you know, golf, 
you know, started in some form or another, you know, probably five, six hundred years ago. We're never quite sure on the exact date. And it was very much a community game. It was not an elitist game back in the day. It became that way when, of course, the aristocracy got involved and the rich guys got involved. And then the institutions around golf got involved in terms of, you know, the clubs and the clubhouses. And it became that that became elitist. But the game itself was very community based. So people in, for example, in the east of Scotland here in St Andrews or in Fife or down in East Lothian or west coast in Ayrshire, you know, golf courses were part of regular public parks at that time. Obviously, a very different form of the game back in the day, and you know, historic rights were protected. So, for those who don't know the history here in St Andrews, I mean, literally, it's it's a part of the law that the people of this town have a right to the grounds of the links, and they can play golf there. And of course, on a Sunday when there's no golf in action most of the time, you can go and walk around there and have picnics, walk your dog, etc. So, I think the rights to golf courses have always been retained. And also in Scotland specifically, we have kind of a right to roam, you know, historic law that's been there for centuries where basically anyone can more or less walk around any public ground if they wish. So that that openness has always been there. So I think, again, I think the, the reason it's still retained that way today is because the game, I think, predated the institutions. Whereas, and I think in the United States, the institutions came first and then the game followed. I think that's a subtle difference between the two, uh, I, I would say historically. But yeah, I think the rights, if the game had started today in the UK, then it might be a completely different story. But because you're going back centuries ago and your old ancient parchments of paper with a bit of writing on them say, yep, they've got a right to play and be here. And that's still the case centuries on. So the people back in the day, thank you very much for that. Do you know the history of the rights to Rome? Why were those put into place um, in the first place? Uh, it's complicated because you know back in the day, you know, centuries ago, you know much of the country was basically owned by landowners and the and the aristocracy. And I think because ultimately there's so much wide open space, uh, and I think communities themselves, you know, came together. There's also a degree of you know religious institutions as well. So, for example, it was an, actually an archbishop in St Andrews who actually was the one that declared that people had a right to these grounds. They couldn't be closed off. Because um, at one time, uh, the old course at St Andrews was actually a private golf course. Uh, the RNA had exclusive rights over that. But then as time evolved, it became more public. And then it became, as it is today, basically in the hands of a public trust, essentially a charity. Uh, it doesn't always act that way, but that's what they are fundamentally um, and at, at, at their heart. So, yeah, it's an historic thing that uh, I think is, is really fun. And um, while, of course, you know, through time, people have tried to put barriers up. And of course, there have been exceptions to this you know, through time. Um, it's not, I say earlier, it's not a completely perfect uh, picture at all. But, you, yeah, you still can you know, walk down a golf course. You can still walk across a golf course, even private ones. Um, and that's, while it's not always safe you know if you're a dog walker or anything like that but it's very common here to you know, walk around golf courses and there's a dog walker walking along the edge and you're roaming around and things like that people walking down a country path and they walk by a golf course so yeah and i think that in itself is kind of at the heart of the game and kind of what it should be about uh, and i think it, it it changes perceptions where obviously you know golf has a often had an image problem and much of that is because of kind of a perceived elitism and, and things like that but I think if you have the community even those who don't actually play golf if they still feel you know we can still use this land or or bypass this land walk around this land it's still kind of ours 
And I think that's why people here, uh, I think, actually respect the golf courses uh, more so than perhaps elsewhere. Because even though they might not play golf themselves, they realise how important it is to the community and, of course, as well, the economy. Where do you play your golf, Kieran? I, that's what I'm curious. Being in the home of golf in St. Andrew, where do you like to play? Are you a part of a club? Well, I, I'm actually not a member of a golf club specifically. Uh, despite my apparent um, sort of conservative manner and, and sophistication, I really don't like institutions <laughs> at all. So I'm not, I'm not one. I'm not one for committees and club ties and and old guys with dandruff on their shoulders. And things <laughs> like that. That's not really for me. Um, so but I, I love the game. That's why I enjoy the game. Um, so I, you know, I play here in St Andrews all the time. I, I've got a Lynx ticket, so I have the right to go and play. You know, all the golf courses here, which is obviously a massive joy. On Tuesday there, I played the old course, yeah. uh, which was you know always fun, always a great experience. It was great weather. It's fabulous. Unfortunately, uh, I did a, something I'd never done before, gentlemen, uh, which was actually miss the 18th fairway with my tee shot, which I've never done before. <laughs> right or left? Which was you know, left. Oh. I just hooked it way left, and it ran and ran and ran, and out it went. Yeah, I've missed a fairway off the first tee many times, left and right. But off the 18th tee, that was a, that was a, a first, unfortunately. I, so, but yeah, I guess, you know, it's all part of the experience, I guess, ultimately. But uh, no, I, I play here primarily. And obviously around this part of, the, of Scotland too, around this kind of east corner of Fife, you've got so many fabulous golf courses. I mean, last year I got to go and play Dunbarney Links, which is a new golf course that was about 10 miles from here. You know, Ely Golf Course, which mm. is a fabulous quintessential course I absolutely love fabulous place and courses like that uh, but my origins in golf are, are far less sort of grand um yeah i was originally from uh, the west of the country uh actually from an island uh, called the isle of butte and on the isle of butte they have three golf courses there that are remarkably scenic and rugged but the one that i always like because you know, i quite I, I quite like to be kind of different and embrace things that no one else likes you see i'm kind of a hipster that way a real life not one of those pretend ones you see kind of right, a real real life, real deal contrarian the real yeah not no, not the guy who just wears you know the, the gear yeah. no no I, I go all in so i mean the golf course i i love to play was a little nine hole wasn't really a links course but back in the day it basically was co-owned with a farm so literally the golf course had cattle, sheep, even horses at one point, just roaming around, uh, little fences around the greens to try and protect those. Uh, it was rough and ready as you can possibly imagine. And But again, it was fun to play and it was it was character building as well. Um, so, you know, these days, you know, 20 years later or so, I mean, I, I don't really... Bad condition on a golf course doesn't really bother me because I think, well, you know, compared to back then, it, most golf courses are great because back, you're playing out of, you know, cow's excrement and things like that back then. So, I mean, for someone like me who's got kind of a surreal sense of humour, it was great fun. So that golf course is, is a wonderful place. Actually, it was at Tom Weiskopf. Uh, who designed Loch Lomond uh, back in the early 1990s. He actually went to visit there and it has got an unbelievable location. And he said, you know, this would make us an unbelievable golf course if you had the money and the investment and obviously get rid of the cattle. Uh, thankfully, the cattle's now gone. The golf course is now their own. Uh, and it's much better now condition-wise. But yeah, I, I do miss the cows in some respects. Yeah, it's still a great place. So that's kind of where I started playing golf. And then I've gradually moved east and... Um, you know, played perhaps grander golf courses, but that one, you know, kind of heart and soul, 
that's still the one for me where it has an old-fashioned wooden clubhouse. It's been there for 100 years. Honesty box. There's no staff there. You go there, you put your money in the box, and that's you. On you go. Yeah, that that that's kind of goes back to kind of the rural community side of golf, uh, which is a, a big part of it as well. And again, is a unique thing. And you see a lot of you know, people from the States and North America you know, coming over. You know, Yes, they want to go and play at St. Andrews or go and play East Lothian or Royal Troon or places like that. But it's kind of a crowd now who actually kind of want to go and see the more authentic yeah. places, uh, which are kind of hidden away, very rural, more adventurous, fantastic scenery, very rugged. And, and those are the golf courses that are for me. And that's ultimately where I started. And that's kind of what I still, in my heart, sort of call my golfing home. That's where we've we've brought up a lot on this show is like everyone's in their own golfing journey. And I think I certainly hit a point in my life where I wanted to play the best courses and I wanted to, well, first I yeah. wanted to play my best golf. And then I realized, okay, that's, this is not always going to pan out that way. And then I wanted to play the best courses. And I was on that pursuit to, you know, play the open Rota, to play us open venues, to play top 100 golf courses in the world, stuff like that. Yeah. And the more I did it, the more I realized that there's there's the essentials that make golf great. And and yes, those places are special. Yes, they have immense history. Yes, it, it, it is aspirational to want to play there and continue to, but it isn't what makes us love this game. Those those places aren't aren't it. And and when you strip those experiences down at the very top and at those, you know, romantic places that brought us to the game and, and your your courses on Butte Island, they have the essential elements there of what makes golf great. Being with people out in the open, having a match, you know, enjoying the walk and and it, trying to hit shots that, that you know, fire the imagination. And so I, I just, I've gone more and more that direction away. The, the more I've gotten deeper in this game is those, that's there at these places. You just gotta, you might have to look a little bit harder. You might have to dust it off mm. a little bit more often. But I, I do agree with you that there you know, you might be a hipster today or a contrarian today, but more and more people are going to be in your boat. Soon this will be the popular norm, I hope. That's my hope for golf. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's definitely true, but I think, you know, you mentioned there about obviously trying to find that experience at these kind of lesser known golf, golf courses. And I think it's more or less a case of imagination. If you open your mind up to it, then you can have those same experiences and you can obviously enjoy a round of golf at a very you know you know very mediocre seemingly you know municipal nine hole golf course versus playing the championship golf course at Carnoustie for example I mean you can have the same level of enjoyment if not more one because Carnoustie actually beat you up and that's not really fun to me but but it's still you know it's a different kind of yeah, I mean, there's a different mentality there. And uh, I think it's fun to obviously to aspire to play the top golf courses. You can't, you know, that's still an experience I still find enjoyable where you think, oh yeah, all the great players have been here. You've watched it on TV. You can kind of feel that yourself and have a chance to try and emulate some of those moments as well. It's really cool. But at the heart of it, you know, golf is golf, wherever it might be, you know, big course, small course, great course, not so great course. It's still golf. The game doesn't really change. The stages just, just do. And that's kind of window dressing. But the game at the heart of it is what it's all about. And for me, that's that's the key. Oh, I love that you're featuring stage here. Like I'm definitely a huge proponent of the grounds of the game dictate the game, right? Like they should be what's privileged and focus on the most. But I think, so what, yes. one of the things, you know, I know several times on this pod, Matt and I talk about the UK golf experiences is very idyllic. And most United, US people that go overseas and play, they come back and it's like, 
oh, it's perfect. It's the way it should be. And, uh, you know, it is idyllic. But obviously, you <laughs> not, know, not everybody, but, I but mean, most. a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, you've already mentioned, you know, it's not perfect here. And you use that exact phrase mm-hmm. earlier. So I was wondering, from your perspective, what are some of the current tensions within the UK golf scene, golf scene as you see them? And what would you like to what changes would you like to see? You know, what are the things you would like to see addressed within the UK golf scene? I mean, ultimately, it comes down to cost. And we're seeing your memberships, your cost of memberships rising dramatically in the past couple of years. And this is obviously kind of a, an impact of the pandemic where before the pandemic struck, you know, golf was, you know, at very least stagnating, if not moderately declining with time. Um, not to a, a dangerous level, but it was kind of moving in that direction. And then obviously, you know, COVID came, there was lockdowns, you couldn't do very much, uh, but golf was one of the activities that you could actually do. So that led to just a, a staggering boom that I think was certainly the case in the United States as well. People people either came to golf for the first time or went back to it having left it years previously because they could actually go out in the outdoors in the fresh air and get out and play and have some exercise and actually you'll see some people, which for much of 2020, you couldn't really do an awful lot of here, that's for sure. So that, of course, led to a staggering amount of demand for you know, memberships and tea times. We saw waiting lists brought back to many clubs that hadn't been there for decades, which was, you know, on one hand, obviously really, really exciting. But when you have things that are at a premium, suddenly the price rises and it becomes more expensive. And people think, OK, I'll, I'll pay for it now because I can't do much else. And now we're kind of two or three years down the line and kind of reality is returned, if you like. And it's come back with a vengeance because you have this cost of living crisis where your inflation is very high. Everything's got expensive, uh, your energy, your food, everything else. And golf's kind of been the same. And when that happens, of course, people start prioritizing things. Do you prioritize your food, energy or my golf membership? And that becomes, some people might not be too sure about their decision there, but for most sensible people, the golf probably goes first because that's obviously a leisure and a, an accessory to your life. So that in itself um, has led to you know, pressures and frustrations for a lot of golfers. And at Golf Shake, where I you know, work full time, we survey golfers every single year to try and get their read on you know, the state of the game, their own experiences, their own habits, how that's changed, their spending habits, what they think are the big issues. And what we see is a real concern when it comes to golf becoming increasingly expensive, which by virtue would actually make it elitist. If you're basically saying the only people who can really afford a golf club membership are either those who are wealthy or are retired, then you're dramatically limiting population because the one thing that comes into it as well is you know money is one thing uh, but time is the other thing and of course for anyone who in like you guys obviously you have families you have kids if you work during the week how much time do you really have to play golf in that case can you justify the expense of an annual golf club membership and that's where you see now more golfers increasingly are kind of moving away from that model and i do think that's ultimately the future for more flexible options, be it multi-course memberships or just paying and playing as you go or becoming part of a golf society. And we see evidence of that, you know, definitely growing in popularity as well as time goes on. Because with a golf society, you still have the community aspect of a golf club, but you're not tied to a particular venue. And I think that is incredibly attractive to people. So I think at the moment, we're kind of in a state of flux where 
golf courses still seem very busy. Uh, it still seems very popular, which is obviously good. Uh, obviously, we were concerned about the impact of the cost of living crisis, but we might not really know the impact of that until perhaps next year, when people maybe next year start making those hard decisions of whether how much did I really play the golf this year? Maybe, maybe 15, 20 times. Does that justify an annual membership? Probably not. To really justify that, you have to play probably you know 80 to 100 times a year. And for most golfers, that's not really feasible, especially here when the winters are a little bit rough. So yeah, there's a, a kind of a, a state of unknown right now, Kevin, when it comes to the kind of the state of play. Um, but there's, there's still reason to be optimistic as a dog barks in the background. No, Nolly's, and, um, Nolly's equally upset about this. You know, she's yeah, fired up. Yeah, she's she's very concerned about the cost of living crisis. That dog food is becoming increasingly expensive, and she's getting lower quality stuff. Kevin's cutting corners. I'm happy with that on on what it is. Yes, indeed. But yeah, so Matt, it's definitely the case that. Um, uh, say the cost of living is an impact on everything, and of course for the, for the golf clubs themselves, you know they obviously for their maintenance, golf course maintenance is, is much more expensive now. It costs more to run golf clubs, so it's a difficult balance act for everybody. But yet golf clubs have to be careful, otherwise they might find that they actually squeeze the demand and ultimately are punished by it in the future. I'm glad you brought up the cost on the the club side because I, I think it, it goes yeah. out without saying. Uh, for our, our listeners or our, our, our audience here that um, I'm a deep proponent for the golf society concept. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. I dropped everything to, to start a new club here in the U S because I saw the exact same thing that you're talking about, Karen, that your golf shake um, uh, audience also sees and, and having that flexible option just seems to be more broad appeal. And it's going to go, it, the, mm -hmm. we're going to continue to trend that direction. Um, however, I say that because we have seen the adoption of it increase for sure. More interest both on the golfer side as well as the club's propensity to uh, to allow for guests to allow it. But we've seen the guest rates also increase post-COVID. And a lot of that is um, a little bit of it is just the exclusive elitist culture that we have here in the U.S. of like, oh, you want to play my course, you know, pay me $700 and sure, I'll let you out on a Tuesday. But the, the but another component of it is that clubs are, are seeing this, this inter-working uh, between club memberships and guests. And one or the other or both, we're going to raise the cost on because our costs are up, because our staff now requires more pay, our labor requires more pay, our um, vendors, everything across the board and maintenance especially and materials and yep. so I, I was curious to to, to you and I'll, I'll I'll kind of kick it your way of, of what have you seen between the uh, the interaction between member get a fees and guest fees and 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 what what direction has the UK gone these last few years with these challenges and then and then secondly what have you seen clubs do? to bring down costs. Are we attacking the costs? Because I think that question is at the heart of it, of, of what are clubs doing to reduce those fees? Yeah, well, on the first point, so initially, you know, in, in golf terms, obviously they prior, and when the golf came back after the pandemic or kind of during the pandemic, when kind of restrictions were, were loosened, et cetera, they prioritized members. So, you know, for that reason, membership costs you know, went higher because it was a, a greater demand to become a golf club member. And because of that, they wanted to basically prioritise their own members. So they, they priced out the, the guests, the visitors, to try and dissuade them from turning up. 
But as time's gone on, of course, you know, people have started to maybe drop their membership and they want to go back to play more golf and uh, pay and play as they go. And then clubs have found that they can't quite bring back the visitors from before because they priced them out in the first place. So they've had to find that balancing act too. So both have risen in time. I mean, I've seen cases where club membership's probably risen by maybe 10 to 15% in the last you know, year and a half, two years at most, which is significant. And the green fees have arguably, you know, some places even doubled in the last three years. So that has had a huge impact. And we mentioned golf societies, which, which for a long time, you know, were a huge income, particularly for kind of the second tier golf courses here. Obviously, the big courses here have all the international travel. They they still flourish. That's that's good for them. Now it's all back to normal in that, that respect. But for the kind of the lesser courses, golf societies, we have a group of guys coming along taking your golf course over for the afternoon, you, you cater for them, they have food, they have drinks. That was a huge part of the um, experience and a huge part of the income for many golf clubs. But because of the pandemic, um, they stopped really welcoming them quite as much because they couldn't accommodate them. They were going to prioritise their members, etc. So now the societies now go elsewhere. So they've that's been a pressure too. So golf clubs have kind of found themselves in a, a difficult position where it seemed great at the start when it, oh yeah, all these new members, that's fantastic. But now, you know, reality sort of returned and the kind of there's an imbalance to what they're trying to offer. And, and that's a real difficult balancing act for all the clubs right now. And again, it might take another year or two to get a full read on what they've actually done. Have they been able to correct this kind of imbalance or have they not? And that will be fascinating in the years to come. I'm pretty sure when we have our, our Golf Shake audience uh, survey at the end of this year, they might give us a read on that as well. But in terms of the, the costs, Matt, Obviously, you know, they've kind of seen an awful lot of evidence of this, even in places like St Andrews, where even the Lynx Trust here were actually reducing opening hours for their clubhouses. So having you know, fewer windows for meals and dining, cutting staff, you know, just obviously closing down, you know, shutting down earlier. And you see many smaller golf clubs actually more or less get rid of catering entirely, where you can't really get more than just a sandwich at a golf course now. So that's been part of it too. And of course, I think the biggest cost ultimately for any golf course is of course maintaining the golf course itself. And we've seen all the kind of materials and the you know the equipment has gone up, you know, exponentially in terms of cost and the running costs. And that's been a, a huge challenge as well for them. So maybe golf courses aren't quite as pristine as they once were, which you know might not necessarily be a bad thing, uh, because I think maybe you know, the, the pursuit to be like Augusta National is not realistic for most, and uh, that was not a great kind of model to try and follow. Um, and so expectations of golfers have to change as well. So I think everyone is kind of proverbially you know tightening their belt golf clubs and golfers, uh, but I say time will tell. But the one thing I will say though, I do think that golf is kind of resilient because you know people do love the game. It's a game for a lifetime. And I do think in that respect, golfers, most golfers will still try and make the effort to remain part of it as best they can. But it's just for golf clubs themselves to have kind of the vision, the, the sort of the public relations, communication, marketing a bit of, you know, ingenuity there which sometimes is lacking to perhaps you know facilitate that and still make themselves welcoming so as i say right now we're kind of in a state of cloud unknown the skies haven't quite cleared yet but when they do i mean it'll be interesting to see just what the impact actually has been of this kind of recent cost of living crisis yeah i i i hope that uh you know for us we've gone the other direction mostly which is um 
well, now we've, we've boosted all these memberships and we have to really make these members as happy as possible so that we don't have that attrition. Yeah. So clubs have, uh, <laughs> clubs have gone over, overboard, in my opinion, with, co- with spending. And, and even though costs are up, not many clubs that I'm hearing are trying to uh, cut back on certain things mm-hmm. and, and try to be m- more of a minimalist approach to, against, or a, I should say an essentialism approach to what is essential to this experience. Obviously the golf course is essential, but are, are the, the standards at which we are keeping this golf course, you know, the, the, uh, the areas of the course that are unplayable having flower beds, for example, or the areas of the course that, you know, are, are, are there some that we can let go native and, and save the, you know, from turf grass areas and, and that conversation is happening at so few places, Karen, here in the U.S. And we've just mm-hmm. we've had this boon, even though costs are up. People are are kind of in in that mindset. It feels on our private club side of of the world. But I think again, back to what we were talking about with the spirit of of the true heart of the game and the essentialism of these are the things that keep people coming back. You know, that's focused on that, and that's not listen to the uh, the, the loud minority of people that want these you know, uh, pleasantries and want these, these, um, accoutrements to the golf experience. That's, that's focus on the broad appeal of golf. And if we do that, the, the, yes, you might not have, you know, in our world greens that are running at 13 on a stint meter, but you're going to have greens that run at eight and are very healthy. And, and you're going to have a staff and a superintendent and a grounds crew that aren't, you know, ready to walk out the door. And, and I just, I, I see the same cost crisis being dealt with very differently here, but it sounds like there's more similarities in the UK than I probably gave, gave uh, credence to. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, uh, but just, you know, kind of on that note about kind of the, the game itself and what the game is about, I think your know, golf as a whole, um, you know, if it markets itself properly, it can still be hugely successful everywhere. You know, I mentioned earlier, you know, obviously a game for a lifetime, you know, a guy at 80 can play with an 18 year old on almost equal terms. And that's a very unique thing. You don't get that anywhere else in any other sport. It's such a, you know, I was recently kind of following the, the first ever disability open championship run by the RNA down at Woburn Golf Club. And there you see people who are amputees or they're blind or have various different disabilities and they're out playing the game and playing it very well and enjoying it and loving it. And that accessibility, that's what golf should be about is you'll market it that way where it's like, you know, whatever you know, ailment you might have or how you are physically or how old you are, it doesn't really matter. You can still play golf or a form of golf. And I think if they facilitate that better, then I think all golf clubs will be hugely successful because it is very unique in that sense. And I think today as well, perhaps you know, perhaps a symptom of kind of our online digital culture and obviously something that was definitely exacerbated by the pandemic, where I do think there's still that kind of longing, perhaps even greater than before, for kind of a sense of community and connection. And I can't think of a better sport uh, to offer that than golf. So, I mean, even though there's challenges for the game and and balances to try and correct everywhere, uh, there's still so many opportunities. So while we have kind of maybe some of us who write headlines now and again are a little bit doomsday-like, oh yeah, get the clicks in, we try and drag people into the story. But I do, at my heart, still think there's a great deal of reasons to be optimistic about golf. I think what happened in the last two or three years has given it 
a foundation to build on. We shouldn't just settle for that. And I think if they market themselves properly, golf clubs and the game as a whole, all kind of different governing bodies and local authorities and so on, then they can still benefit hugely because golf can and really should be you know, a game for all. And if we you know, make that possible, then the game will be successful in 100 years from now, I think. Yeah, so Karen, I think like I want to dive into this little optimistic versus doomsday thing. I think from the U.S. perspective, it's easy for us, and you know, Matt and I to see like the places you mentioned that bring in the international crowds. And it's like, wow, they're thriving, yeah. successful. Look at all these cool things they do. But I think what you've touched on so much with this pod, um, this episode today is like, that's not the reality for a lot of the other clubs within the UK, you know, yeah. the North Barracks and Gullins and that sort of thing. Do you see like, so about now diving into this doomsday versus optimistic um, category, do you see course closures being a real thing over the next decade for these you know clubs that we don't typically know of? Is that like an ongoing tension um, within the UK? Like, course is actually going to have to close up in the next because of this cost of living increase. Well, we saw it before the pandemic. You know, golf courses were closing. A lot of the public golf courses and kind of small communities were closing down. So, for example, in Scotland, you know, our biggest city is Glasgow, and more or less, you know, all the public golf there was essentially decimated uh, before the pandemic. All the courses were shut down. Uh, a friend of mine is very passionate about a golf course in the Midlands of England in, in Derbyshire, a historic golf course originally designed by Harry Colt and it was a public golf course and it was closed down by local authority. And things like that still happen where, because obviously courses are run by local governments, their budgets are also being pressed and, and tightened and they look for cuts, golf, that, perhaps the more the entry level golf courses, if you like. That's easy, that's for old white guys. We'll just cut that there, that's fine. And, uh, and that seems to be a case there. So, you know, private golf clubs, I think, are doing quite well. And, and still, even the kind of lesser known ones, kind of second tier courses are still doing quite well. But it's kind of the ones below that, they're the ones I see potentially struggling. Uh, and that's a real problem because yes, these golf clubs at the higher level have full memberships, have busy tee sheets, that's great. But what happens in 10, 15 years when their membership starts, I'm afraid, you know, passing away quite literally um, and disappearing, who's going to replace them? And if we don't have the entry level golf, the public golf, the cheaper, you know, more accessible golf courses, then where's the next generation going to come from? And I think that is kind of the, that, that that's a, a dark cloud that might come in the decades to come. But of course, people live in the present think, well, it's all fine. It's all great. We won't have to worry about that. Like, I'll be dead by then anyway, so who cares? But the reality is that's that potentially could be a problem going forward. So I think we have seen, you know, golf courses potentially threaten with closure. There's a great golf course down in Ayrshire in the west of Scotland, a public golf course called Belisle which is apparently, again, potentially threatened closure. And it's been an open championship qualifier course as well back in the day. It's a really good golf course that is popular. There won't be a public golf course or fewer public golf courses in that area. So where are the beginners going to start? But the local government there thinks, well, we can cut our budget here a little bit. And that's going to be a huge problem because suddenly start playing. Because again, going to a private golf club, not really being a golfer, is an incredibly intimidating experience. And these public golf courses you know, are much more welcoming, much more accessible, and they're the place to start. And if we lose that, then we could have a real problem in the years to come. Um, but I say hopefully not, because as I say, I think that this is where, the, again, the game as a whole has to market itself and improve to the policy for all. And if they 
get opticians and prove to local businesses, you know what, golf is worth supporting because we can actually offer, again, a game for life and a game. What's uh, a uh, Karen, thank you, man. This has been educational. And, and really, I think the uh, heart of, of this discussion for me is, is the realization that, you know, we, we, like Kevin said, we have this idyllic image of uh, golf in the old country, right? Yeah. Where the game came from and its yeah. roots. And, uh, and in each visit I go back, I learn a little bit more how similar we really are in a lot of ways, even though we go about it very differently. And I think we're addressing, but we're addressing the same problems the same way. And I, I think if more people, and this, this is true of society and culture, if you just step outside your norm, you know, maybe you're a, a municipal golfer uh, that, that sees golf a certain way, but if you don't kind of look at a different culture or look at the private club next door and see how they do things, like you won't learn in the same way for our private club members. If you don't look at, you know, the public golfers or look at the golf societies or look at, you know, how they're doing things in, in Wales or how they're doing things in Australia, it, it, we all can benefit from this, this learning of, of, because we're all dealing with the same cost of living crisis. We're all dealing with the same problems, uh, same hum human societal issues that impact the thing that we all love very much, which is this game of golf. So hmm. I, I just, I think this, I, I feel more connected to uh, the UK after this discussion because <laughs> it, it feels so foreign and different, but really it's not. You know, this, no. this is, we're talking about the exact same issues over here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, as as we, you know, for example, the English language, of course, between the US and you know, and Britain, it's kind of you know, you know, kind of um, you know, what, what are we kind of separated by a common language? But in reality, we are kind of united by that by that language, and we're united by golf as well. And as you say, there are great similarities. I mean, I see stories in the in the elitism and kind of the perceptions there, and maybe the the. The extent of it's perhaps more stark in North America, US that come across, you know, about public golf courses being put under pressure as well, about obviously the private course and what it is here. But there's still the same issues. And again, we're all dealing with the same pressures. We all play the same game. It is still the same game. And um, yeah, there's a lot more that unites us, I think. And and I think there's a, maybe, you know, the perception that some people have of kind of golf over here is, again, it's kind of a perhaps a successful marketing program where they kind of portray this idyllic, oh, golf's just below the surface. You pull away the dirt and get the best over here. Oh, this is how it should be. This is fantastic. When we kind of get into the weeds of things in there and you realise, no, we've got the same problems here as we do elsewhere. Uh, and that's and that's kind of the reality of it. Obviously, there's a very big difference between the tourist golf courses. And I'm you know, playing in St Andrews. I am, again, playing those golf courses all the time. That's not reality and that's kind of the divide there where if you come over and play the tourist golf course you're, oh this is fantastic it's so busy it's great everything's wonderful it's so well catered for and maintained and it's just the best experience you can possibly imagine and in many ways it is but again that's not the reality for the vast majority of golfers in in the uk they, they don't play these golf courses they're in their home local golf clubs their own little societies and you know they're trying to make their make the best of it but i say right now with cost of living, rising costs at golf clubs and you know, green fees and memberships. People are making kind of difficult decisions, but perhaps decisions that they would have made anyway. Uh, see, I, kind of going back to a previous topic we talked about, I do think the idea of kind of multi-course memberships or societies, that to me speaks more to the future than what the past does. There's still going to be a place for traditional memberships, but I think if more clubs open up the idea of perhaps working more closely with <laughs> courses in their local area, 
and uniting, having kind of deals with each other and reciprocal programs where people can play multiple golf courses, that in itself, I think would be a huge benefit. So, but, you know, it takes a while. I mean, golf itself, you know, for a while, some of us get there to these changes eventually, but it will probably take a long time. And there'll be many, trying to be more on the progressive side of it. Golf tends to be about 10, 15 years behind everything else. It tends to move at a slower pace. So we might have any conversations like this in the meantime. Absolutely. And we, Karen, I hope this is the first of many appearances on the Backdrop Podcast. I would if love you're willing, to come back. I, I would love to come. You're back. our man on the ground at the home of golf. Hey, <laughs> I know the professor. The professor had to bounce, but I I wanted to ask his question because we on the on the interwebs had a field day with this. But can you tell us from a local resident of St Andrews your perspective on the Swilkin Bridge fiasco where they <laughs> built that nice patio deck? What what was? Give us that rundown on that week there. Well, it's so funny because over the winter. I noticed that they were doing some work around the bridge and I asked some people behind the scenes, what are they actually doing there? What's going on there? And and I was told, oh, they're building some kind of extension to it. And I thought, well, that's not going to go down well at all when people find that out. And then, of course, it struck and it hit and it went viral. And uh, it, it obviously was a remarkable story. And it was amazing how quickly it escalated. That's what blew my mind. You know, basically, it was like the Saturday afternoon, it went viral. By the Monday, they're putting up public statements saying, oh, no, no, it's okay. We're just, you know, we're, we're exploring this. We're, you know, it's a step-by-step -step process. Don't worry about nothing to see here. By the next day, they're digging it up. So it was like, it was like literally <laughs> three or four days. It went from, you know, it's kind of denials you know, and then to finally acceptance and to digging it up. And ultimately, the reason for all that was, was what they were doing was actually illegal uh, because they were basically tampering with a historic site and certainly the local government here in Fife got involved with it and said, you can't really do that. You have to apply for planning per permission. And I've also heard that the United Nations were contacted about it as well, because it is ultimately a heritage site that has to be protected. And they weren't even just, you know, they were building an extension to the bridge. It wasn't just a little platform near it. It actually was attached to it. So it was, it was, um, you know, an amazing story, and it definitely got a little slap in the wrist for the Lynx Trust, who ultimately didn't actually consult the local community, local golfers, or anyone. They just sort of did it quietly when no one was looking, and kind of hoped that they would accept it. And ultimately, of course, that wasn't the case. So I thought it was spectacularly amusing. I loved the whole thing, and uh, I'm glad it's gone because it was horrendous. Uh, but of course, you can understand why they think it, there is an issue because the ground around there now is is worn away again, such as the demand to line up and get your photographs on the bridge. Um, but yeah, at the time, what they did was um, not the best. And actually, I think what actually might have even crossed the line was from the top of the old course hotel if you look back down on the thing it kind of looked vaguely phallic it was uh, a bit of a it wasn't it wasn't a really it wasn't didn't look, didn't look very good from above it has to be said it was bad enough on the ground but from above it was even worse so no, it was a terrible idea and i am glad that it was ripped up and taken away however they missed a big trick i think matt because ultimately could you imagine i i think you know i'm kevin you've been the merch guy wouldn't you have bought one of the bricks from the patio on the Swilkin Bridge? I mean, they should, have, oh. just, they should have sold those. Put them in a museum somewhere yeah. because that was, uh, you know, for two weeks it was there and then it was gone. 
I mean, we're we're a big uh, we're a big hot dog country over here. You know, at the turn you get a hot dog. I think that patio they built it would have been perfect. You could have had a little side grill. You yes. know, everybody kind of walks by, grabs a hot dog, takes a picture yeah. on the bridge. Keep well, you know, I'm actually you know, what I deeply regret, and I, and I regret most things in life, Matt. But one thing I regret more, more than all right now is the fact that I myself didn't get a picture on the bridge when the patio was there. And I'll never have that, that chance been, again. I've missed out. Uh, Devastating. Uh, well, even our most revered institutions, they make mistakes. and They, and, they, they uh, certainly do. And I guess it takes you know, you know a, a smart person to admit your mistakes. Uh, but as I say, I think their, their, their wrist was squeezed by uh, higher powers on that one to tell them that, you know, what you're doing wasn't really right. But uh, could, you, could, could, yeah. you, could you imagine? I mean, it's the fact that they did it during the winter when no one was there to really pay attention to it. And then suddenly... People start coming back, taking pictures of it, and then that was it. But it was just the, the escalation of it, I thought, was just wonderful. So I sort of sat back and just laughed about the whole thing because I just thought, you know what, you guys deserve it because what you did was a little bit arrogant. And, um, yeah, and it's always fun to watch kind of arrogant people kind of uh, get ridiculed, and they certainly were over that one. Karen, we, we really appreciate you being with us today. Uh, we really enjoy your articles from golfshake.com. So keep those coming, man. And well, thank uh, you. And let, where else can folks find you? I know you're, uh, you're on Twitter a good bit. Anywhere else that people can look you up? Uh, basically just on Twitter. I'm afraid I'm not one for the socials, really. Just at Kieran Clark Golf. You can find me there. I don't really tweet too much these days because kind of the quality of discourse on Twitter has deteriorated to an unmanageable degree. And I, I rather, I'm more of a Twitter voyeur nowadays. I sort of observe and watch all the chaos without really partaking in it. But I am there and golfshake.com. Plenty of content there. You know, the tour stuff, golf course stuff, everything you can possibly imagine is covered there. And uh, even for viewers in the United States, there's some Something to, some value there as well and kind of insights to golf in the UK and in Europe as well so it's definitely worth checking out and for, for both you guys you know Matt and Kevin I have enjoyed the conversation greatly and I'm, I'm, I'm just disappointed that I didn't really give you any answers oh dear <laughs> but a lot of questions a lot of a questions, lot of questions. <laughs> we got a lot so, of questions from today yeah, no, it's, it's, that's, that, that perspective is what we were looking for, my friend. We know these don't have answers, but we want smart people like yourself on this show to talk about it. And then the professor will go into his lab with all of yes. his nerdy friends and they will come up with the answers. That's <laughs> yeah, what exactly. the show's all Yes, yes. I, I'm basically- You, you know I'm, better I'm, than I'm, that. Yeah, you're Kevin, you're the machine. I'm inputting into the machine and you can come up with all the answers <laughs> for us. The man, he doesn't have a, a real emotion either. He doesn't cry. He doesn't laugh. He, well, he laughs, but that's just He's a, a machine right program. Now, <laughs> yeah, but it's a machine program just, that he developed for him to appear human. Uh, oh. No, he's... <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you know, I just do that on call when I when I feel like it should be done. But come on, you know, we're <laughs> academics. Yeah, us academics never have the answers. We just go, well, but... That's that's our job. Well, you know, you know what, what I always say is I, I think perfection and having all the answers would be very boring. Exploring the answers and researching them, that's where the fun is. Kieran, Spot we on. loved having you on, my friend. When we're over, we're, we'll be back uh, to St. Andrews not too long. Next year, I think, is our next voyage. So okay. uh, we, let's oh, grab I'll a beer, let's that. grab a game. Yes, we, we, we would love will. to do that. Yes. And vice versa. When you're passing, if you're ever coming this way, we'd love to to, to meet you. Okay. Well, again, I've loved the conversation. And uh, as I always say, until next time. Until next time. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks, Karen.
Cheers, guys. Boy, that Kieran Clark, what a guy. I think I'm a St. Johnston supporter. I think I'm joining his club. I'm all in. It's, it's ride or die with him. <laughs> He's just, you know, I think he, he, uh, he obviously is, it's just, it's our goal, right? To have thoughtful people on this show. And what I liked about having him on this, sh- on, on this episode was that we, we asked him really to question our, our belief, right? I think your, your question, professor, about the, our idyllic version of Scottish golf, of golf in the UK, of this openness, you know, you point blank said like, you're, you're challenging our convictions. You know, that's why one reason we started a new club, one reason we're, we're doing all this is that we think it's a, a healthier, better version of golf. But I think you, you directly said, you know, is that the truth? And he said, to some degree, but, but also not. Also, we have the exact same problems. And I think that was really insightful for me is that it is the same problem. It's just addressed in a slightly different way from, from both, uh, both cultures, both societies, both, you know, geographies. And, um, not one is right or wrong. It's just this one is more our preference. But even in their way of going about it, they are are hitting some issues and they're running into the same roadblocks. And so well, you can learn a lot. I felt like I learned a ton on this episode. What, what did you take away from it? No, I think just echoing that's my major takeaway, right? Their golf exists within a society that involves hierarchies and social status and monies and everything like that right so you're going to see some of the same tensions or i've used tension a lot today some of the same issues and like things to wrestle with especially relative to what they want the game to be in terms of an accessible game that's open to the community so you're going to see those issues but i think the one thing that really stood out is their history puts them at a different place in terms of addressing those issues they're in a much better place both with the systems, the way it's set up, as well as the people's mindset around golf is fundamentally different than the U.S. version, right? So they actually, they're probably, I would assume, they're actually thinking about this a lot more and they're actually trying to wrestle with it and tackle with it, where in the broadscape of the U.S., nobody's trying to wrestle with it, right? It's just status quo moving on. I think that's, and his point about institutions there was the big one that stood out. Like, golf started as an institutional game here. And over there, while there are institutions associated with golf, um, and including some exclusive ones, that's not really the history of the game in the UK. That's not the ethos of the game, which just puts them at a fundamentally different place where they probably are thinking about this. I mean, we've been in conversations with the new golf club captain several times, right? Like the things they're thinking about are different than the things we're th- not we're thinking about were being the US landscape of golf, not we as in like new new club or anything like that. Right. Yeah, the, the other thing that I, I got the sense of is they're certainly here. I think our our um, default has always been to to segment, to splinter, to fragment, and and you see that with the the, the golf landscape as well, where we we have our least clubs, and they're going to have their set of problems, and we're going to have our munis in our uh, public golf, and and people that want everything to kind of stay in that lane. It's like, that's your problem. So even when we're talking about the cost of membership, I know there's going to be listeners that are say like, hey, I, I don't even get in that world. I, I just got my courses on the public level that I care about. 
and and those are, are still accessible to me. And yeah, they're, they're they're crowded, and the costs of, of fees have gone up. But that's a their problem. That's a private golf problem. But I think over there, they they it's much more intertwined. And and I think that is a better thing for golf in general. That this isn't a their problem, a private problem, or a public problem. This is our problem. So we have to think about the interaction between guest play and membership costs. We have to think about the cost of the public course down the street and the private club here. We have whereas here we just kind of silo everything, right? And and uh, I, it's my preference. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong or right, but isn't it better for this game as a whole if we all take on these issues uh, collectively and and have that interaction? It's more just feels open and honest and uh, um, a healthier version of the game, as I always say. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Uh, and I wish that our podcast was visual because whatever happened there at the tail end of this episode, I'm telling you, if you're listening, the professor, he had dogs barking. He, I thought it was like a magic trick. Kieran and I are sitting here. He, the professor exits door stage left. He comes back in as a totally new person with, it was a, a, uh, a reflector vest on a big construction hat. I mean, it's like a construction worker. I go, what happened to the professor? It wasn't the professor at all. Uh, it was another gentleman with with what well, tell us what was happening because that really was a I, you you might need to apologize next week to our our guest you could actually apologize right now to Kieran because I think he was rattled he was like what just took place he he handled it in stride I'm gonna apologize to myself because it took me away from Kieran a little bit and like I said this is such an insightful podcast but it's the summer of home improvement right it's he said you know we don't we don't work in the summer as academics uh, we were upgrading the fiber internet. I live a little bit on the outskirts of town, so we're finally getting some fiber. So we're getting that installed. We got some hardwoods coming in after that. We're just trying to get for those that do see the visual ever, um, you'll see a different. I'm at my home office right now. We're trying to get this set up so we can run the podcast from home rather than the school office. You're a good man. Yeah, it's all it's all for the greater good. I, I we got to get this thing on YouTube eventually so people can see the chaos that goes on at the. The, the professor's house um, and our matchy matches, our matching outfits. That's right. The big thanks to the uh, sponsor of the podcast this month. The path to the PGA Tour runs through Glenview when the NB5 Invitational presented by Old National Bank returns to the Glen Club on July 25th through 30th. Make the most of this summer by watching the game's future stars compete for a coveted spot alongside the legends of golf. Tickets are available now. Looking for an upgraded experience? You can check out The Hangar. That's where I usually like to post. Uh, Presented by Corona Premier. It's the premium venue with food, drink included. Visit nv5invitational.com to secure your place today. I think that's to give the WGA and and even Barstool a a round of applause on this too. You know, I've been highly critical of the PGA Tour of not not showcasing the stories before their stories, right? Like spending time really developing, thinking about the corn fairy players and their stories and having that narrative. So when they do break through, then people are already familiar with what they are, right? Um, Sort of a relegation model in terms of just exposure. Uh, So kudos to the WGA and Barstool of not relying on the PGA Tour to do that storytelling and get that voice out there, you know, the live broadcast of that. That's that's awesome for them to step up and do because we need more of the Corn Ferry stories out there in our face. So we know when we're familiar with them before they get get up there. And so we also also the um, 
the broader landscape knows how talented they are and the grind that they're they're working because it's not a glorious lifestyle out there uh, for those players they're yeah. working hard they're working harder than a lot of us um so kudos and kudos i know i know that. you work i know you work with a number of them professor of of getting their you know games ready and and it is uh, you're right. I thought the exact same thing. And the idea of relegation, I know I'm on this uh, minor league, premier premier league, national league thing uh, with the the game of soccer. But uh, they, I think the, the PJ Tour, that meritocracy, it, they're really starting to figure out how that leans in from a fan perspective because the – Think about the designated events. You know, you are going to now have for 2024. I know they haven't officially released it, but you're going to have those weeks in between where, you know, when it's a, a corn fairy tour guy that gets on the big tour, uh, you know, maybe he won his third event or he gets he gets that that exemption and he plays well enough, he could end up in a designated event, which is crazy to think about. If you have a three week, you know, guys get hot. You can get hot for three, four weeks and you can play in a designated event and make a huge life-changing paycheck. I'm tuning in for that. So yeah, kudos to to all the, the Corn Ferry Tour and everything because I, I I think that is going to be an exciting element um, as as they continue to evolve, which we know they've, they've had to in a, in a lot of different ways. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, it's always a pleasure being with you. Uh, really appreciate the support and Professor. You know, good luck with all the home improvements, man. We we and we hope it all goes smoothly. Yeah, we gotta get this stabilized. Too much too <laughs> much anxiety week. during this recording. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week. Thanks everybody.